Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. North American markets have been relatively flat throughout this earnings season, leaving market watchers to wonder what's next. Also, how could this earnings season impact next week's Fed meeting? Urian Timmer, Director of Global Macro, is back with us today to break down what's on his radar. Urian shares with host Pamela Ritchie that the market seems to be betting on a soft landing scenario. He says not just for earnings, but one where the Fed plays along, maybe raising rates one more time and then eventually easing down to a neutral rate of around 3%. Looking at earnings season, Urian notes that the companies who have reported so far have reported earnings of about 5%, which is larger than normal. Today, Urian will unpack why earnings have been resilient. Among other topics today, Urian also focuses on the price low last October, and if it was the start of a new cyclical bull market, as well as the possible direction for currencies, including the US and Canadian dollars. This podcast was recorded on April 24th, 2023, and per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts. So please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Irene. How are you? Good morning, Pamela. This, I'm going to do table thumping just for a second. This was my favorite, favorite of your reports over the last three years. It was fascinating. It is literally a must-read for everyone joining you here today. They probably already read it, but it was fantastic. We'll get to all of the historical stuff in a sec, but what ultimately would you say is the pain trade for equities right now as we sit here with earnings about to be swirling everywhere? Um, Well, the pain trade clearly has been higher because the market has been firm, even though to a large degree, it's been driven by a handful of very large cap stocks. Um, So, so it's, it's the market feels looks stronger than maybe it actually is. Um, but clearly, the market has had a lot of reasons to go down, and it didn't. And that is always a tell, you know, from um, when, when you're a veteran market watcher, that's always a tell. And, and the opposite is true as well. When the market has every reason to go up, and it doesn't, it tells you there's distribution going on. And when you look, for instance, at the commitment of traders data, which shows what speculators are doing in a futures market, I, I believe, and I don't have the chart, but I believe that the um, speculators are the most short, the S&P 500, uh, uh, on record. And so it gives you a sense that the pain trade is higher. And, you know, if you ask, like, what would be the fundamental sort of reasoning behind that, um, I think that would be um, basically a soft landing uh, scenario. And, and, you know, we've talked about this and we see, we know how, inverted the yield curve is so it's it's you know i never want to be this the person says you know this time could be different uh but i i think if we were to connect the dots to say okay the market's going up instead of going down why is that happening uh, i think that the reason for that if it ends up you know being the case is that earnings which are declining on a year-over-year basis maybe 
only will decline so much and then start to recover. Um, and then the market historically has been very capable of looking through that kind of valley, right? So the market can look through an earnings valley, especially if there's the promise of easier money on the other side through a Fed cutting cycle. Uh, market has a tougher time looking through an earnings abyss, uh, especially if it comes with tighter money's, uh, monetary conditions. But the market, it seems, is right now betting on a soft landing, and not just a soft landing for earnings, but one where even the Fed plays along and you know maybe raises rates one more time in May, which is now becoming the consensus, but then takes a wait-and-see approach and then eventually starts to ease back down to uh, neutral, which is around considered to be around 3%. So I think that is the narrative that would have to carry the day if the market really ends up remaining as firm as it is today. Right. So that's that's sort of what would have to happen for things to go higher, as you say. Can we get into sort of the valuation side of things? You have some great charts on this. It's answering, in a way, the same question, but just taking a yes. look at the valuations. So so let's, um, yeah, so and, and let's go to slide 11. And I'll just kind of put it graphically, as of course, as we tend to do here, um, uh, to show sort of where 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 we would have to land in order for this scenario to pan out, and then after that maybe we'll we'll show the yield curve to kind of give an illustration of maybe uh, why the economy has become less or more resilient to to rate rises. But let, let's start here. The first few slides we'll look at today are the market cycle slides, which Urian tweeted in a thread on April 26th, and again that is at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter. So this chart shows the average for all market cycles going back a century. You know, I like to dig into the history. Um, so this is the average with the caveat, of course, that there's no such thing as an average market cycle, but we have to start somewhere. And what I've done here is I've made the assumption that the market has bottomed. And of course, my assumption has been that the October low was, you know, the low in all likelihood, but that we were going to stay in limbo for a while, which is more or less what, what has happened. Market's gone sideways now for 10 months. Uh, but let's assume for a moment that last October was a cyclical bottom. And of course, we don't know in real time whether that is the case. Um, if that is the case, you look at the gray dotted line, that's the S&P 500 total return. You look at the blue dotted line, which is the earnings line. And then the yellow orangey line is the valuation line. And these are all measured as the percent change from the bottom in the price index. So that's the vertical line. And what you can see is a clear pattern, one we've, which we have discussed uh, many times over the past three years. And that is that at inflection points, the market usually is ahead of earnings, right? The market's always discounting the future, not always correctly, but it's always looking ahead. And typically at a market bottom, price will bottom about two quarters ahead of earnings. And by definition, if that happens, that means that the early phase of a bull market is completely driven by valuation multiples going higher. You know, we saw this in 2020, of course, we discussed it many times. So that's the, the base case that if this was a cookie cutter market cycle, uh, this is what would happen. Now, let's go to the next slide where I actually show you the current cycle overlaid against those averages. And you can see, that that blue line, this is the current earnings 
uh, cycle. And then towards the right of that chart, you see what the consensus estimates are, which are just estimates. And they're not my estimates, but these are Wall Street consensus estimates. And you can see that if the consensus is right, which is a very big if, um, the earnings cycle is following exactly in line with the average. And the price and valuation part are, you know, not exactly the same, but they are following the general script. And, and the punchline on this chart is that if we have an earnings bottom coming up in the next quarter or so, and if the price low of from last October was the start of a new cyclical bull market, then we are actually kind of on track for a typical a bull market rally. And, 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 and just to extrapolate that a little bit further, when you look at that dotted yellow line, um, the, the multiple expansion part of the early cycle bull market is good for about a 41% increase, right? Wow. So the PE ratio last October was 15. That's the forward PE. Today it's around 18 and a half. Based on this chart, it could go to 21, right? 40% times 15, like, you know, 40% more than 15 is 21. If you take next year's earnings estimate, the consensus estimate of about $225, $230 per share, multiply that by 21, well, well, guess what you get? You get back to the old highs of around 4,800. And so again, that's not a, predi a, a prediction. But if the question is like, what needs to happen for the market to be justified doing what it's doing right now? To me, that's the answer. This has to be a relatively soft uh, earnings decline that reverses, you know, later this year. And if that's the case and the Fed, you know, uh, starts to maybe play along a little bit uh, in terms of not raising rates too much further, then you can connect the dots to not only the market being at its current level, but actually going back to its all-time highs. Fascinating. So, so you've sort of covered a, a number of pieces within this. Of uh, you know, we'll have to go on to sort of this multiple earnings um, expansion. Sorry, this this multiples expansion because we're in this sort of quiet and earlier cycle piece of it. But then we have all of these massive earnings that are due out this week. I mean, what sort of chop do you think we could see? Let's now take a look at earnings estimate progression, tweeted on April 26th. We do know that earnings are declining, um, but they and, and the previous charts show that as well. But they're so far declining you know, modestly. Here you see uh, the quarterly numbers, and, and I've shown this chart in the past. So the, the pink line is the current quarter that's being reported, so Q1. Uh, the, and these are expressed as growth rates. So the growth rate is minus 8%. Uh, the second quarter, which is the orange line, obviously will be reported in the next quarter. That's down seven. And, you know, these numbers generally come down into earnings season and then they bounce during earnings season because companies like to uh, under promise and over deliver. And so far, 88 companies have reported earnings. The average beat is 5% uh, by about three quarters of the companies. Uh, that 5% is larger than normal, but again, only 88 companies have reported. We have 35% of the S&P reporting this week, uh, so we'll, we're going to know a lot more. But so far, it's it's a controlled decline. It's not the collapse. And of course, you know, the bank run headlines from six, seven weeks ago have not really continued. So I think there's a sense that things are not going to 
completely unravel here. And that brings up, you know, the, the point that I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, if what, what would explain why earnings are being relatively resilient compared to, you know, what, what might have happened. Um, one of them is that, of course, the global economic cycle is more desynchronized now. China is coming up. Europe is actually doing pretty well. And that is an offset to what otherwise would be a declining earnings um, uh, situation in the U.S. But the other part, I think, is very important, hard to, hard to quantify, but very important. And we can look at slide, where are we, slide uh, nine, or actually slide 15, sorry. Um, and that is that maybe the, the economy is just more immune to rate, rate increases. And that slide is Have Borrowers Termed Out, also tweeted on April 26th. Because we had so many years of low rates, and then of course during the pandemic, 2020, 2021, we were at historically low rates and very much negative real rates. And so that really, I think, is could be behind this. So in this chart, I show the gray line is the 30-year fixed rate mortgage rate in the U.S. Of course, Canada, it's a little different, but this is the rate in the U.S. And you can see the astronomical rise from 286 at the bottom in 2020 to 689 today. Um, and if that is a proxy for interest rates in general and how homeowners and businesses um, are, are facing, you know, much higher costs of borrowing, you, you could see why the, the economy should be, you know, crashing to a halt. And of course, the, the bank headlines from early March with Silicon Valley Bank, of course, hinted at that. Um, but beyond that, that, those particular incidences, when you look at the average coupon on various bond indices, so the pink line is the average coupon on the high yield corporate bond index, the, uh, the, the kind of, uh, the other, the more purple line, so I should have used different colors, is the, uh, average coupon on the, on the mortgage backed securities index. These are the Bloomberg Barclays indices. And what you see is that the average coupon um, has barely risen. It's gone from 260 to 284. That's only 24 basis points. On the high yields, gone from 567 to 586. And so to me, this is a kind of an unscientific way of deducing that um, maybe people are not as sensitive to rising rates anymore, which is which could explain why this massive increase in rates, 500 basis points by the Fed, uh, has not crashed the economy yet. Uh, maybe it will at some point, but it hasn't yet. And just one other way of looking at that um, is in is in chart nine. For us, chart nine is yield curves, tweeted on April 27th. And again, this is a very unscientific way that I've done this, but I think it, it does kind of explain a few things. So we know that the yield curve is the most inverted in four decades. We can see here in the black line, the three month to 10 year curve is at minus 147 basis points. And we know that historically that has spelled trouble, right? And, and for all the, all the correct reasons, right? Because if short rates are much above long rates, that means banks are upside down because they are borrowing short, they're lending long. And if short rates go above long rates, their net interest margins or NIMS go negative. That means they stop lending money into the economy, and that means you get a credit crunch. So this is how an inverted yield curve becomes a recession at some later point. You never quite know how long it's going to take or how bad it's going to get. 
But we also know that during this particular cycle, that bank deposit rates have remained extremely low. That's the purple bars in the bottom, even though the Fed funds rate has gone from zero to almost 5%. And bank rates always lag behind the Fed. You can see that towards the left-hand side of the chart, but they usually don't lag this far behind, right? So the mega banks are basically still offering zero on their, on their deposits, but the average is about 0.5. Now, if we can kind of stretch maybe the boundaries of, of logic a little bit and say, let's replace the three-month T-bill in the yield curve with the average deposit rate, now you get the purple line in the top panel, and it shows you that the yield curve actually is about the steepest still as it has ever been. And, and again, I'm grossly oversimplifying here because we can't assume that the average deposit rate is the front end of any any yield curve, all right? Not everyone borrows uh, at the bank rate. But if if the deposit rate is how the banks fund um, and the, the long yield is kind of a proxy for where they land or buy, uh, then I think it is, it you know, that there's some, some value in looking at it this way. And it just shows that the yield curve it, for some people or some institutions is not as negative as it is, as it looks on, on the surface. And, and again, I never want to be the person that says this time it's different. But if you ask me to come up with an explanation of why the yield curve signal may not end up working as quickly or as much this time as it has in the past, this would be me, this would be my exhibit A for that. Okay. So I, this is incredible because I think that is the question that everyone's sort of trying to figure out the answer to. Some fantastic questions have just come in. Let's put these to you. And then I want to ask you a bit about, you know, where the Fed fits in history. There's a question coming in about the um, debt ceiling debacle. That's actually the, the word used here. So you're going to talk about that actually in a minute in, in sort of the historical side of things. Um, Urian, is the decline in U.S. commercial real estate enough to have the Fed pause? What do you think on that front? Um, it's it's a great question, and many people think of uh, commercial real estate as the subprime of you know 2023 for subprime being the the, the canary that uh, in the coal mine in 2007. Um, I I I don't know. I do think the Fed is going to pause after maybe raising rates one more time, and uh, it's going to be at five ish percent. And I think that's probably you know prudent for them. To say, okay, we've ris we've raised rates by a ton over a very short period of time. We know that there are leads and lags in the system, so why don't we just stop here and see what happens? So on the commercial real estate side, I think a lot of this is known. You, you look at the bonds, the CMBS, and you know it's in the price, but we know the story. Tenants are just handing back the keys, saying this is your problem, not mine. Uh, so it is a known thing, and and it speaks to the interest rate sensitivity of, you know, of that it, the same interest rate sensitivity that Silicon Valley Bank speaks to, uh, where the Fed just went really hard, really fast, and um, and things will break, and and that's kind of what we're seeing now. Of course, commercial real estate is more related to COVID and 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 the way we work and and things like that. Um, but uh, I I do think it's known. The Fed must obviously know about it. It's not a huge part of the market. It's not real estate in general. Uh, but it's definitely one of the weakest links uh, right now in the economy. And, and you know, just on, on the debt ceiling, which you asked about, mm -hmm. um, the, the main variable right now that we're waiting for, uh, now that the Treasury has almost spent down its cash balance at the Fed, right? It's down to like 80 or 90 billion or so. It was 
10 times that much just a few months ago. So the Treasury is under extraordinary measures right now, which means that it's trying to find ways to pay the bills because it can't issue debt. And so it's drawing down its cash account at the Fed, but that's almost gone now. And so now the big variable is how tax receipts are coming in, because, of course, tax season now just ended. And if those tax receipts are weaker than expected, which so far appears to be happening, then the Treasury is not going to get that inflow of money that it can spend, which basically means that the government, the White House and the Treasury have to go to the bargaining table sooner than they otherwise would. And, and I'm hearing some estimates that it might be as early as June where they're going to have to make a deal. And, and as you know, all, historically, that deal has always come, but we don't know how many theatrics will need to happen before that happens. And of course, we have a political situation here in, in Washington that it's fairly toxic where a minority uh, from the Republican Party seem to be uh, you know, not too concerned about what, what, what they need to break in order to make their, their message known. Not, not to pick on Republicans. I don't ever do that, but, but that's kind of the, the dynamic right now. Yeah. Yeah. And just before we go to, um, um, some other, there's a question on where the U.S. dollar goes, sort of based on everything that you, you said at the beginning. And if there was, in fact, um, sort of that bottoming, yeah, so, bottoming process, yeah. where, where do you see the USD? So I'm I'm we I'm in the weaker dollar camp, um, not not a crashing dollar camp. I mean, there are people out there that think uh, the dollar is going to lose its reserve status and go down in a in a fire fiery flame ball. Uh, I don't think that. But when you look at a historical chart, which I don't have today, of the dollar, and you compare that to the share of global reserves that the dollar occupies. Um, the reserves are going down. Um, it's down to 58% of global reserves and the dollar has held up a lot better than would be suggested by that. And the reason for that is that we've had this policy divergence over the last year where the Fed has gone really hard in raising rates while other central banks, for instance, in Europe, um, Canada, the UK have gone hard as well, but maybe not as much. Um, and then, of course, other countries like Japan and China have actually gone in the other direction. So that policy divergence has caused the dollar to strengthen. And now that we're closer to the perceived end of the Fed cycle, uh, that's coming back in balance. So I, I'm in the weaker dollar camp. I think that bodes well for non-U.S. assets, especially emerging markets, uh, especially now that China is sort of coming out of its COVID uh, lockdowns. Let's give everyone a, a bit of a, a taster of, of some of the analysis that you go into that um, looks back at the 1940s, which you, you've done many times with us here. Um, this has an interesting analogy because it goes back to a time when the Fed did not have independence and actually had to use other methods rather than raising interest rates to contain the market. Um, what do you want to say about that? What do you leave people with with sort of five minutes to go? Yeah, so so just so everyone knows that I don't have uh, fun all the time. Well, I, I thought it was fun actually, but I, I'm not like at Burning Man all the time that I'm not doing doing this. Um, I just read uh, a history of the Federal Reserve, at least the first volume. I'm about to read the other ones, but this was the history of the Federal Reserve by Alan Meltzer, who is a scholar, covering the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and that has been a very important analog for us, of course, we've been discussing it for three years because the analog is that, you know, obviously the U.S. went into World War II um, and uh, ramped up its uh, its spending in a very big way. Debt to GDP went to 120 percent. 
and it was basically monetized by the Fed. And the Fed at that time was not yet independent. So the, the Fed was deemed to be an arm of the Treasury, right? So the, the government, Congress would decide whether to run deficits. The Treasury was tasked with financing that deficit by issuing bonds. And the Treasury did not want the Fed to go against it by, by, you know, tightening policy when, when, when the Treasury was issuing a lot of debt and needed low interest rates. So the, so the, the, the Fed was subordinated to the Treasury. We'll now look at yield curve control during the 1940s, tweeted on April 27th. And this will be followed by government securities holdings at the Fed, also the next tweet. And so what happened in the early 40s was, you know, the U.S. mobilized the economy to, to join World War II. Um, and it said, we need low rates to do this. And the, tre- and the Fed actually volunteered to fix the bond yield, the long bond yield, at 2.5%. Um, and what it did was, which is actually, it's kind of brilliant, actually, because, you know, I've, drawn, I've looked at the lines on the chart many times, but I never really appreciated the nuances of what actually happened during that time. And what happened was that uh, essentially the government had a contract with bondholders. Say, if you buy these bonds at two and a half percent, we're going to defend par on those bonds so that you never lose any money. And of course, in real terms, yeah, yeah. And of course, in real terms, investors lost money because inflation ended up going up. But nobody really thought of things in real terms back then, which is kind of amazing. But it's because we, you know, the depression was deflationary. So nobody really thought about, you know, what are real rates going to be? Like, that's not, that was not part of their, their makeup. So what the Fed very cleverly did was it basically fixed the entire yield curve. It put T-bills at three-eighths. You can see that in the gray line. And the bond at two and a half, uh, but it really focused on the three eighths on the T-bill side. And what it did was it basically put this hard Fed put underneath the long end of the bond market so that banks, which were the primary vehicle or the primary player in terms of buying the debt, you know, it went on the Fed balance sheet as well, but banks bought a lot of it. Uh, the banks would just sell their T-bills to the Fed buy bonds, which were seen as kind of having T-bill-like characteristics in terms of the volatility, but at a much higher yield. And so the banks were just lining up to do this all day long. And and it was called, like today we call it a carry trade, yield curve control. Back then it was called the pattern of rates. That's what the That's what it was officially called. And banks and individual investors and insurance companies and trusts, they did this all day long. And so the Fed bought all these T-bills from these banks and investors, and then uh, then those investors would buy long bonds. And knowing that that par on those two and a half percent bonds would be defended because that was kind of like almost like a sacred contract between the government and the and the investors who who basically financed the war. And uh, if we go to the next slide, you can see the composition of the Fed's balance sheet at the time. Um, you can see that the, the blue bars, those are the T-bills. So you can see most of the Fed's balance sheet increase was in T-bills and not in long bonds, even though the ultimate goal was to keep long yields low. So the Fed kind of, you know, it, it, it got it got the, the free market to do things that otherwise it would have to do itself. And, and we think of the Bank of Japan today doing exactly that, right? They They have to defend the long end. The Fed did not have to ever 
defend the long end, nor was it ever challenged because they just had to buy up all the T-bills and then the market took care of the rest. And so you can see in this chart that the Fed's balance sheet went from 2 billion, you know, tiny numbers by today's standards, to about 25 billion. And, and, and I think, and you mentioned, you know, different policy avenues. So if we go to the next slide. The next slides are monetary policy during the 1940s and then inflation during the 1940s, tweeted back to back on April 28th. What happened was the Treasury did not want the Fed to raise rates because when you run a large debt, you need low interest rates. And at first, the Fed went willingly along with that. But then after the war ended in 1945, the Fed got more and more uncomfortable doing the Treasury's bidding. And so the Fed tried to do macro prudential you know, policy moves in order to keep the market and, and the economy in line. Because remember, back then, every sign of weakness in the economy, people were afraid it was another Great Depression uh, and another deflationary depression. Every time the market went up or down, they thought it was either another bubble or another crash. So people, uh, policymakers, thought in a very binary way in that sense. So what the Fed ended up doing is it used reserve requirement ratios on banks and margin, ra margin requirements on stocks as two principal levers to kind of manage the economy, knowing that it really didn't have much power to move rates around. And so you can see there the gray line is the Fed policy rate and the orange line is, is, the, is the reserve requirement rate. And then let me show you one more slide because yeah. I know we're running out of time, but slide six. Uh, this was one of the big aha moments that I got from reading whatever, I think it was 800 pages of this history. Um, and one of the things that I was always puzzled with is that, you know, we had a massive inflation in the 40s, but policy rates stayed at, you know, one, one and a half percent. And the whole system did not like cave in. Like, you know, when I think of financial repression and and artificially keeping kind of this beach ball underwater, if you will, that once it ends, the whole system comes crashing down. And I think that's certainly a fear that people have in today's market, right, after all of the, all of the, the stuff that's happened over the past couple of years. But that's not what happened in the 40s. So if you we, look at so the it brain may line, not. I mean, it's possible yeah. that it that it may not. If, if you look at this, right. I think people are going to have to take a look at your report. It's so interesting. One question that's just come in here. I'll just put this to you on on the way out the door here. Uh, Yurian, where do you see the 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 CAD to the U.S. Uh, dollar exchange rate settling in back to the currency? It's um, such a big story. I, I think the dollar is going to be weaker, but not like in a catastrophic way. And I think uh, commodities and commodity currencies, not not to not to stereotype the cat as a no, commodity it currency, because it's much more than that. I think those currencies will generally be firm, uh, because I do think we're in a commodity super cycle, um, and I do think the dollar has has reached its its cyclical peak. So that would be my my answer. My favorite report of all of yours. Thank you so much for writing it, just from my perspective, but I'm sure others as well. Yuri and Tim, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. 
While visiting Fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you. See you next time.